What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 71 of Dart Against Humanity. Tonight, I uh, went to MIT to see Rob Swift and um, Harry Allen, the Harry Allen, uh, the media assassin, the man who was responsible for uh, the coverage and, and media department for and dissemination of information for uh, Public Enemy. So I went to see them. He has this residency happening at MIT where he's brought Rob Swift of the X-Men slash Executioners and they organized a septet, seven DJs, to be a, a turntable orchestra. They're called Harbinger. So he came down, he did a lecture, it was him and Harry, they did a lecture at MIT, so I went down to see it. It was me, a few of the um, the DJs from the septet, and MIT students. So of course, I walked through the door. The first person I see who's in charge of video is somebody I've worked with and seen quite a bit doing other things, events in Boston, works with a, a mutual friends. Haven't seen him in a while, so you know I see him and I'm like, oh, what's up? Sit down, uh, listen to the lecture. It's an amazing lecture because it's from the perspective of somebody who's been around before hip hop existed and saw the evolution and had a completely different um, perspective on it because of that. If you were born before there was hip-hop. If you remember the radio before there were rap records, if you remember the first time somebody presented a cassette tape with rap on it, or the first time you looked up and you saw graffiti on the wall, or the first time you saw somebody b-boy, or you saw a DJ, and mind you, a hip-hop DJ is not the same, did not have the same... um aesthetic or technique or style is a traditional DJ and DJs do DJ different kinds of music did it differently if you were a disco dance DJ you were different animal than let's say a salsa merengue soca DJ if you're a hip-hop DJ you are going to have a completely different focus and a style and an attitude and an approach than any other DJ. And that change is crucial because it marks a brand new dynamic. And a sea change eventually happens when that changeover, that transition happens when you start seeing these other DJs go by the wayside. And this occupies your life because this is the new thing. This is what you're all about. You know, like house DJs and and techno and all these other things. And then there are the DJs that incorporated it all. Because that was the new black music direction. We play all of these different genres and subgenres. Now, when they were talking about uh, 
turntablism and being a DJ and what it meant. And uh, Rob Swift was talking about his life and the journey of his career and the ups and downs and doubting himself and studying and just staying well within his limits and then expanding those limits and studying the art and the culture and not understanding exactly what it meant to be uh, original and be himself, there are steps that you have to take. You start out, you have your um, inspirations, you have your idols, and then what you do is you find the greats, you find the people that do things that you like, you study them, on a level you imitate them, and then you emulate them. Then you have to get to a point where you have to take what they do and you have to expound on it. You have to add on to it. You can't just feel comfortable doing what they did because it's not you. You have to bring what you bring to the table and make it unique. Then it just gets to the point where once you figured out who you are, you keep learning and you keep learning and you keep learning. And then maybe one day you'll be perceived as one of the greats yourself. And he was just talking about the journey and how it's never ending, how you always learn, how you can always get better, how someone can always come along and inspire you more. And it's a nonstop thing. It's not ever, it's never over. And you can learn from somebody younger than you just doing it. You can give somebody a jewel or something or a gem and they can take it and they can do something that you didn't expect them to do with it. And you can, and then when you teach, you can help somebody in their process and their journey and just marvel at them figuring out that moment where it's like, I thought I couldn't do this. I'm a novice. I'm totally green. And then they pick it up and they realize, oh my God, I just did something I didn't think I could. I achieved something I didn't think I could. And when that happens, it's over. Once somebody has it in their head that they can't do something or they think it's hard to achieve. And when they finally overcome that obstacle, everything changes. A light goes off. All of a sudden, wait a second. This is possible. I can do this. Uh, while I was sitting there listening to the lecture, I thought a lot about uh, the lessons that I learned from skateboarding. I was not a skateboarder, but I hung around a lot of skateboarders and it intrigued me. Because it was a subculture outside of the norm. And these kids lived and died for it. And people looked down on them for it. Which is something I totally got. Because when I was a kid, we used to go to the floor. Everybody looked at this like we were crazy until Flashdance came out. And then everybody was like, oh, that's what the kids are doing. And then fucking Breaking comes out. And then Beach Street comes out. And Breaking 2 comes out. And the pilot comes on TV. And... All of a sudden, now it's the new hot shit. Now it's on the cover of Newsweek. You know, now it's in commercials. And now it's, now it's cool. 
But like with skateboarding, these kids would look at pictures in a magazine, still pictures, and see and read about these kids thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away doing tricks. And when they saw these still pictures or saw people discussing them, they knew that this thing that they didn't even know was possible could be done. So that sought them out on a mission to do it. And then when skating videos came out, it was a wrap because kids saw these people performing tricks that they didn't even realize could be executed. But all it took was seeing it. And then what happened is they went out in the street and they tried it themselves and they could fuck it up eight times, nine times, 21 times, 29 times, 37 times, 45 times, fall, bleed, get back up, try it again. It didn't matter if it took 50 times to do it. It didn't matter if it took 100 times to do it. All that mattered was that you landed the trick. Because once somebody landed the trick in that friend group, I don't care if it's four kids, seven kids, 12 kids. All you need to see is one person land that trick that they had been trying for however many times. And that's all it takes for everybody else to know I can do it because it can be done. I just saw it. And the thing that doesn't matter is how many times you failed in order to do it. All that matters is that you got there. And that was one of the lessons that I took away from, you know, my time hanging around with kids that skateboarded and watching skate videos and reading the magazines. I saw every 80s skate movie, fucking Gleaming the Cube and and Rad, all those joints there with the video store. Or I would hang out with my white friends when I went to Boston Latin School. This is when um, culture really changed for me because I went to predominantly black Latino schools. I went to uh the Josiah Quincy School right in, right in my neighborhood, which is still like into Chinatown. These are all in walking distance. And I got there and it was a completely different culture from when I went to Boston Latin School starting in um, 1987, 88. With my big brother Dave, he was a junior. I was a 60, seventh grade. It was a seven through 12 school. And it was the first time I was in a school with predominantly white people. So the majority of my classmates were white kids. It was a culture shock for me. So, of course, you know, you're and then like it gets to be a thing where in class, in detention, you have your friends and then the lunchroom. It's a different thing. You know, you sit with mostly black and Latino kids at the lunch table. The white kids usually sit with themselves. Again, this is before things really changed. This is still the early 80s. Later on, like late 80s, early 90s, that changed. But also you have to keep in mind that this is one of the few schools in Boston where it was predominantly white. The Boston public school system was pretty much 80 to 85 percent black and Latino during the stretch and there were like two or three schools that were predominantly white now i don't know what the number is maybe two i don't know how many schools that like out of all the schools because white flight from the boston public school system has gotten 
crazy even since then. The post-busting era was nuts, but now whew, it's nuts. But the point I'm making is that I was exposed to different cultures and different and different friend groups. And so I had a new perspective on stuff. And I learned from that culture, you know, the kids would be coming to school with patches on their jackets, faster pussycat, kill, 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 you know, um, every rock group you could imagine. I ran into uh, pre-goths before goths existed, pre-goths, um, Cure fans, kids that were into Megadeth and Dokken, you know, like... It was weird because white kids would be in shock that I understood some of the references that they were making to like heavy metal, the movie heavy metal or rock and roll. I'm like, yeah, I saw rock and roll. I saw heavy metal. What are you talking about? Who hasn't seen that shit? And they just stare at me like, um, you're aware that that's a niche thing. And I was like, you're aware we're at Boston Latin School. Nothing was weirder to me that at Boston Latin School, kids, cats would call somebody a nerd. I'm like, you read fucking Greek and Latin. You know who Pyramus and Thisbe are. Know what I'm saying? Like, you, 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 you read J.R. Tolkien and you're calling somebody else a nerd. Shut the fuck up. Seriously. No one's trying to hear that, man. Like, come on. You're calling somebody a nerd. Holy crap. You want to go to Case Western Reserve when you grow up. You're a nerd. Shut up. Now... The thing I'm the thing I was talking about was in um, the culture, learning about like turntablism and getting to a point where you're doing something that you didn't realize you could accomplish. You have a fear or you have trepidation in your heart and you push forth and you do it. You set forth a goal or even you probably just thought I'll just try this thinking you can fail. But the thing is that failure is crucial to finally succeeding. There's a game called memory. The game is you turn over a card, then you turn over another card, flip it over. You turn over another card, turn over another card. And if you start seeing things that you recognize, you match them and you flip them over. If you're fast in memory, you'll start remembering where things are and you flip them over. But if you fail a lot of memory, guess what? You've seen every card. So you're still, if you're just quick and you remember, it's like, all right, I've turned that over three times. That's where it is. It doesn't matter how many times you do it. If you play memory fast enough, you'll finish not that much slower than somebody who's really good at it. If you play it fast enough and remember. Failure is crucial to success. It's just how you fail. Just like you can fall skateboarding. But if you land a trick, it doesn't matter how many times you fell, if you cut yourself, what have you. All that matters is that you landed the trick. Because if you can land it again and again and again and again, nobody's going to talk about the 414 times you failed trying the trick. Nobody cares anymore. All that matters is that you can do it now. And it doesn't matter if the person in your friend group only did it on 92 tries because you're both people that can do it because you know what's going to happen is going to be another trick. 
and you're both going to try to do it. You might get it in 114 tries. They might take 300 something tries. It doesn't matter. You're both there because what happens is it's going to be another trick. See what I'm saying? So that's like one of the things that I learned just taking it away from um, that lecture. And it was really inspiring and eye opening, even about things that like I knew. But like just to have young people who are MIT students who at one point, you know, were the smartest or the brightest wherever they were in the world or in the country before they applied to MIT and went to MIT. And now the best and brightest are assembled here and you compete against them on a daily basis. So we're all here. Now it's about what you do now. And the thing is that an uh, institution like MIT or institution like Harvard or wherever isn't the end all be all because there are people that went to Harvard and they just weren't feeling it. They weren't going to finish and they leave. And it's not like they failed because they went off and did great things themselves. It's just that that particular route of going to a school three, four, five years and finishing just wasn't going to be in the cards for them. Just wasn't their thing. Just like somebody who graduated from their summa cum laude might not necessarily do better in life or whatever their chosen path is than somebody who left after two years or who was kicked out or left of their own volition. At some point, everybody has a path to follow and you can't compare yourself to somebody else because what they're doing isn't what you're doing. Even if you think you're headed for the same direction and you envy what somebody else has, they might look across and think that I wish I could do X, Y and Z like they do. Because we're always in our head thinking that we're not enough or what we're doing isn't uh, good enough or special enough or we're not great enough. What I do when I make my particular um, type of art when I write, when I create, I think about how can I make this better or is this good enough for me or will the people or the audience that I hope takes away from what I want? Uh, takes away what I hope that they take away from it, will they get there? That's what I focus on. Because if I focus on something I read, something somebody wrote that was so much better and so much more efficient and had so much better um, sentence structure or flow or prose or poetry, or clarity than what anything I could ever write is, then I've already fucked myself up. They say comparison is the thief of joy. Um, eh. Because I feel you have to have a benchmark. I feel you have to have a, a aesthetic or a goal to aspire to in order to keep yourself from um, being complacent and mired in mediocrity. 
you have to, I at least have to, I can't say you, I feel as though I have to abhor, despise the idea of making something mediocre or mundane. I can't, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. However, something mediocre and mundane is not the same as something that's simple and straight to the point. Because that's harder to do than anything that's super technical or lyrical or prosy. I love Shakespeare. I stole every Shakespeare book you could imagine. I used to, and the thing is that also, I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast, is that when I went to Boston Latin School and I took the Shakespeare books that we had from Latin, I realized that those books were way different than the books, the Shakespeare books that they had at other schools. Our, our books had uh, footnotes in the side of the book. They provided context. They had pictures or figures, as they called them. Uh, they told you that this is a reference from this folio or this performance happened with Shakespeare's company and this is why this is here. And I'm looking at these the the on one page right here you have the um the play and then in the on the left there's this page that gives you all these cues and all this context so i'm thinking to myself i'm like why are people in in public schools having so much trouble with shakespeare when these books give you all the clues you need <laughs> Right here. It's like, why is this so hard to understand? And our teacher is walking us through it until I went to a school that wasn't Boston Latin and saw them teaching Shakespeare and how the book didn't aid them the way our books did, how their teachers didn't give them the proper background like the ones we had did. And I was just thinking, wow, we were given every fucking advantage and opportunity. Why? Because we were smarter than the other kids? Because I got to tell you, there are a whole lot of things about Shakespeare and his plays that you need to explain to these kids that kids and other with other backgrounds would get and latch on to way quicker. But me reading Shakespeare was supposed to inspire me to want to write like the bard, you know, aspire to that level as opposed to what it did with other kids in other spaces where it made them uh, reject it kind of and be afraid of it and leery of it because it's something that they can't possibly achieve. I was talking to Harry Allen and um, Rob Swift earlier tonight and I was telling them that MIT and Harvard didn't seem like a big, um, far off dream to me. When you went to Boston Latin School, again, Harvard was built, Harvard College was built in 1636 as a place to send the graduates of Boston Latin School, which was founded in 1635. Boston Latin School and Harvard have been connected since the beginning. So when you were at Latin, it was kind of like the feeder for Harvard and all the other Ivy League schools or the elite schools. So when you're there and you've already gone through uh, 
advanced classes and all these other things in the Boston public school system. Basically, the whole Boston public school system is just trying to parents trying to fight to get their kids into the pipeline to get them to an exam school. We didn't have to fight. We were just poor kids in Lower Roxbury, South End, and we went to advanced. We went to advanced classes. We did. We did. uh, Took the uh, the metro. It was the Met. So when we kids, the uh, the standardized test in Boston was called the Met. M E T. I have to look this up, but it was called the Met. You did well on the Met, and when the Met scores came back, the fucking teachers treated you differently. Teachers that weren't even yours would fucking talk to you differently after the Met scores came out. It was really weird. So my first Met score came out uh, kindergarten two. I'll never forget this. Um, what happened was kindergarten two, my teacher hated me. Um, I've, I think I've said this before. She hated my guts. I was a pain in her ass. I talked back, but I was right. I guess I wasn't supposed to be in kindergarten too. Anyway, something happened where the principal of the school came by. It was called the Prince School. It's now condos. Newberry Street. And he asked, can you read this to the kids? It's kindergarten. Kindergarten too. Now these kids are supposed to read. Can you read this? Can you read this? And Miss Flag, what, that was her name, right? Miss Flag, yes. Because Miss Grindley was my first grade teacher. I hate, hate, I hate remembering everything. And he was like, so, um, Stephen, that's my government name. I don't like using it. Extra syllable, whatever. One letter, extra syllable, kills me. Uh, can you read this? I read the whole damn thing from top to bottom like that. Nothing. Don't, I don't even struggle with the word. I, I almost pulled the uh, the thing I used to like to do to be a smartass when I was a kid was I like Bugs Bunny cartoons when he would read the eye chart and he would read the things at the bottom of our eye chart. U.S. reg pat off, you know, <laughs> I, I was reading. I read everything to the point where I read like <laughs> the references at the bottom <laughs> of the thing. And he was like, all right, we get it. We can read. You can read. It's like, oh, my gosh, this child can read. He can read really well. He's like, uh. What is he doing? And this and this and this and this. And I was like, uh, it was like the Mets coming up and blah 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 blah. And so I take the Met. I do really well. Now the thing is, the Met Metropolitan score, just like any standardized test, it gives you a grade, and that grade is equivalent to your reading and math level for a specific uh, group. Or a specific uh, grade level. I take the Met in kindergarten two. And it comes out with my reading level. And they're like, what? They don't understand that I am a kid who has a sister that's eight years older than me. And a brother that's six years older than me. And I read over their shoulders. And in order, so for me to read a comic book or a magazine the same time as my brother and or sister, they wouldn't allow me to read over their shoulders anymore. So what they would do is they would, I believe, I don't know if I told this before, they would lay the magazine or book on the bed or the table. I would get on the other side and I would read it. I had to read upside down so as not to annoy them.
And then when my brother and sister realized, yo, he's reading upside down, that's some advanced brain shit. They're like, yo, can he read backwards? So they would take paper or books to the mirror and see if I can read it. Then it became a game. How fast can I read it? Can I remember what I could read? And then my mom, I I believe I told the story before, uh, back in the days in the... uh, the late, mid to late 70s and early 80s, uh, after the busing era, schools would close down. So what happened is that there'd just be books from closed down schools, defunct schools, just on sidewalks or just out. And my mom would be like, are these books free? They're just here? Like, yeah, we just, we don't know what to do with them. We can't bring them to the library. They're school books. My mom took those school books However, she could had somebody pick them up, whatever, and brought them to the house. So we had this. I have a picture of it. We had this black wrought iron uh, bookshelf. And it had all types of school books from no long from schools that no longer existed. Schools that were shut down. And I read every one of those books because I wanted to challenge myself And I kind of wanted to stand out because first I was the baby and then I was the middle child when my younger brother was born. So I had to do something to like stand out. And I was the ugly brother at first. So I had to figure out something to do. Now, in that process, I'm figuring a whole bunch of stuff out. Because I'm reading this, I'm reading that, I'm reading this, reading that. And I read different types of styles of writing from educational to writing for kids to um, the way they write when you're when you a medical journal, the way a medical journal was written, academic papers. I read my mother's copy of Bullfinch's Mythology. And what made me want to read Bullfinch's mythology is that I used to read Walter Simonson's Thor. And I wanted to know exactly the backstory of these things that Thor was going through, who Fenris was, who Odin was, who Balder was, and Hoder. I want to know these stories. So my mom gave me a copy of Bullfinch's mythology, her Bullfinch's mythology from college, which I read back to front. Uh, as a kid, I saw uh, Rankin Bass's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings cartoon. Where there's a whip, there is a way. So what do I do? I want to read the um the the trilogy because my brother was reading The Hobbit in school. I was like, I can handle that book. My brother's gonna be like, Are you insane? We go to the West Canton Street Fair. Uh, I think it's 1984. 8384. West Canton Street Fair. This guy has all three of the the Fellowship of the Rings trilogy. They're on a table. And he's he's like, I'll sell these to you for a quarter each. My mom gave me a dollar. I bought all three of those books, walked back over. My brother and sister. It's like, what do you got? It was like, I got Fellowship of the Rings. The Two Towers and Return of the King. These are big books, but they're paperback so I can carry them. And they're just looking at me like, you're like, I'm always like eight or nine. And they're looking at me like, you're going to read. 
the trilogy? I'm like, yeah. Like, how many pages is that book? I look in and I'm like, I say the number. They realize I'm so young that I don't look at these pages numbers and I don't think to myself, I'm not going to be able to read this. All I know is that I saw the cartoon. I saw you read it. So I want to do what you do. I don't have it in my mind that I can't do this. Okay, it hasn't hit me yet. So, of course, I read all three books at a very young age. Now, it gets to be a point and I've never talked about this. It gets to be a point where I'm so advanced for my age group that I start thinking I'm the shit. So I slack. I stop reading like I used to. I stopped pushing myself like I used to because I can skate by. Fifth grade, there was rarely anything that happened that I didn't know or I didn't already know about until one day. I'll never forget this. I was sitting in class, fifth grade advanced. Uh, My teacher was Mr. Muello. And our teacher, Mr. Muello, brings up the Mayans. And he's talking about Mayan gods. And I'm like, man, I don't know why I know about this shit. And this kid in my class, Tim O'Brien, said Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl was this guy. This guy did this. He was revered for this reason. And they thought that the man who showed up on the boat was Quetzalcoatl. And he ended up slaughtering the people. And I remember looking at Tim like, how the fuck do you know that? And that made me pissed off. I got home, ate lunch with my teeth clenched, got home off the bus, threw my book bag on the bed. And I went and I waited for my, of course, waited for my brother to get home. And I was like, yo, you know what Quetzalcoatl is? He was like, what the hell's the matter with you? He's like, yeah, I know what Quetzalcoatl is. And he's like, yeah, Quetzalcoatl, Mayan God, blah, 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 da, 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 da. He's like, you should kind of know this. We're Honduran. But, huh? He's like, the Mayans are descended, descendants of the peoples, that you. And I'm like, what? I read every goddamn thing I could find about Mayan culture, Incan culture, Toltec culture, the Olmecs. Anything you could imagine. In my closet right now, <laughs> there's a magazine uh, from uh, National Geographic. It's called uh, a s- issue called La Ruta Maya that I remember stealing from a library. Matter of fact, you know, let me just go in my closet right now and tell you exactly when it came, when it was. I stole it from the old um, my room. Stole it from the old English High Library. So, that's Scotland, Gaza, and the Scythians, tarantulas of fire, surviving in space, the Great Barrier Reef. Just listen to me moving around stuff in my, la- in my um, closet. The spine, actually, the data's not on the spine anymore. The spines on all the other, the dates on the, all the other spines. I have to actually take it out. Okay, so this is from La Ruta Maya, Copan, a royal tomb discovered, 
City of Kings and Commoners. National Geographic, October 1989. And there's a girl's phone number on the front cover. Mika. 445. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I remember Mika. Wow. I was a pimp. So what's funny is that I, um, La Ruta Maya, yeah, it starts on page 424. Jesus Christ, there are a lot of pages. Why does it start at 424? Wait, what page did it start on? IBM ads? Dots and dashes, a September day 2,000 years ago. In Mesomeric scholars, the date is as clear as today's calendar, September 2nd, 32 B.C., that's what the carved dots for ones and dashes for fives spell out on this 1.5 meter, 5 foot fragmented section of a stela found near Tres Zapotes, a small village in the Mexican state of Veracruz. No one knows for certain who carved the date, one of the two oldest known in the Western Hemisphere, the other found in nearby Chiapas state is four years older. Nor is it known why the monument Stella C was created. Perhaps it marked the conquest of the inauguration of a ruler. The bottom portion was found by Dr. Matthew W. Sterling on a 1939 National Geographic Society Smithsonian Institution exhibition. The top part turned up nearby in 1972. Both fragments are now in Mexico City's National Museum of Anthropology. Who are the people who carved it? We don't know for sure, says George E. Stewart. I'm not going to keep reading that, but you get the point. I am definitely reading from an old National Geographic. The point I'm making is that in fifth grade, I became obsessed with learning something because I didn't know it because I thought I had learned everything. And in my class, there was going to be nobody who could fuck with me. And when it hit me, wait a minute, I can't stop. I have to stay sharp because kids are still learning. And there are kids that know things that I don't know because I'm in advanced classes. I'm not sitting in a regular classroom with kids that can't fuck with me. And the thing is that my brother explained to me is that when you have a gift and you're good at everything and it comes natural to, natural to you, you tend to skate. You tend to become complacent. And then somebody will outwork you. Because they want it more because they look over at you and they're like, this dude or this woman has all these advantages. But they don't put the work in. So I'm going to come for whatever they have. I'm going to be better than them. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to think about them. I'm going to be better for me. And that's when it first hit me. You're not done. Fifth grade. And this happened to me again and again at different points in my life to where it never had to happen again because I never got complacent to where I'm at a point now where I've already got it in my head. It's never over. You can always learn. If you don't know, don't feel ashamed. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just get better. It's good you have something you don't know. Why? Because it's beautiful, because it reminds you that there's always something else. You're never going to top out. Uh, I really didn't care much for past the first time I saw it, um, Avatar. But I will say that the one thing that was beautiful about Avatar was that it gave us the concept of 
We try to teach them, the Navi try to teach them, but their cup is always full. And the guy says, shit, my cup's empty. So I have nothing to do but learn. I don't care where you are in life. Your cup is always empty because there's always something you don't know. There's always something you're bad at. So when I finally applied that to my life and I realized, hey, yo, um, there are writers who are better than me in this field. There are historians who know more than I do in this space. There are people that speak and are so much better or more fluid or natural sounding and have the command of vocabulary way better than I do. That's not something to make me uh, quit. It should not be a deterrent. It should instead (laughs) make me realize I can improve in so many different ways and this, I'm not a finished product. And going to that lecture at MIT with those students and the DJs and the community made me realize that all over again, even though I knew it, but it, it re, you know, it reinvigorated me because again, my book has been out for three months as of two days ago. And just knowing that that's my first book. I'm going to make more. I'm going to get better. I was talking to Howard, um, Howard Bryant. And he was telling me about his books and his journey and how he got better and how he figured out more things. His career went on and on and on and how old he was when he wrote his first book and how old he is now. And his approach is different. And it's encouraging. Directors, this, your first your first film, your second film, your third film, authors, third, fourth film, you know, paintings, painters that go through different eras, you know. Uh, MCs, musicians, jazz musicians, um, lecturers, everybody goes through these evolutions. And I look back at stuff I wrote in 2009. I'm like, I could do that way better. I look at stuff I wrote five years ago. I was like, I could research that way better. I rewrite things that I rewrote that I wrote five years ago because I can research better. I have better um, a grasp on the subject matter. And I look at what I wrote and I was like, there's a more efficient way to do this. When Bruce Lee was whooping people's asses and he beat somebody's ass, he was mad at himself because he couldn't do it in a more efficient manner. He thought he was um, sloppy. He got down on himself for a quick second. Then he was like, I need to fix it. And at that point, who was Bruce Lee's competition? Himself. He wanted to be better. Because he knew if he was better and he understood better, he can teach it better or he can explain it better. And the thing is that he also came up with the idea of Jeet Kune Do is not going to be what it is in this year, next year. It's going to be improved upon. I'm going to figure things out. You're going to figure things out. I'm going to learn things through trial and error. And it's going to get better. It's never done. Art is never fully is never done uh if you've seen um the film about uh facebook there's a line in there where he says fashion is never finished 
and they look at him and they're like, what did you just say? It's like, it's like fashion. Fashion is never finished. Like, you don't know shit about fashion. But it didn't matter to him because the idea is that it goes on and on and on and on and on. The Social Network is the name of the film. First six minutes is amazing. It lays out everything you need to know, even though it's about the subject matter is about an asshole. But anyways, that's pretty much what my entire um, podcast was going to be about today. I don't know I'm going to name it. I'll figure it out. One.